This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Traffic in Colorado can be maddening, and transportation experts are trying to find a solution. One way is to redesign roads. The other approach is to change the cars themselves. If you believe some futurists, a day will come when we don't own cars and kids won't even learn to drive. Instead, we'll summon a self-driving car when we need one. Colorado could become a center for testing these cars, but let's get a feel for the autonomous technology that's already here. CPR's Andrew Dukakis met up with Tesla owner Dr. Jeff Sankoff. Sankoff invited me to take a drive through Denver. He has a fully electric Tesla Model S. It's black and sleek and costs about $70,000 before tax rebates. Other brands like BMW, Lexus, and Mercedes have self-driving features, too. Sankoff had just downloaded new software so he could drive hands-free and pedal-free, something he'll only do on a highway. So we drove to I-25. So I pulled this little toggle twice car is now driving and it'll maintain distance, a safe distance to the car ahead and it'll stay in this lane. He kept his hands near the wheel the whole time and I was a little disappointed. I figured with all these bells and whistles he could just sit back and relax. Conceivably the benefit of this is you could watch a movie while you're going on the highway. I would hesitate to call that a benefit. I would say that that's a danger. Sankoff is an emergency room physician, so he's seen his share of injuries from distracted driving. He said even with the self-driving feature, he keeps his eyes on the road. The car can also change lanes on its own. If you watch the little screen here, I'm going to put my signal on, and it'll tell me that I can change lanes. Wow. And now it's going to change lanes. It's like the car was possessed. The wheel turned on its own, and the car moved over to the next lane. You put your blinker on and then it changed the lane for you. Sankoff also showed me what his 10-year-old daughter calls the go-fast thing. Okay. Oh my gosh, I feel like we're in an airplane. From 0 to 84 in how many seconds? Uh, I don't know. It wasn't too many. (laughs) We were only above the speed limit for a few seconds. Finally, we got off the highway and went to a residential neighborhood so I could see the car park itself. So the wheel is turning, and we are parallel parking right now behind a car. It's a little scary. (laughs) And um, now it's pulling us up to the car in front of us. Wow. I got to check how close we are to the curb. Okay. It put us on park, too. It put us on park. We're about, you know, four inches from the curb. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good, but apparently nothing compared to what we may see in the future. Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. Let's talk more about that future now with John Walker of the Colorado-based Rocky Mountain Institute. It's a sustainability think tank. He researches autonomous cars and hopes Colorado could, at some point, become a testing ground. Welcome. Good morning. Uh, There seems to be a lot of new technology in that Tesla that we just heard, uh, but aren't there other car companies doing similar things? Oh, yeah. Uh, Almost every major car maker in the world has some type of of self-driving technology, be it lane keep or adaptive cruise control. And then we're starting to see non-traditional car makers like Apple or Google start to get into the game and actually have the potential to maybe leapfrog some of the incumbents. So how do you see the progression from semi-autonomous cars of today, like the Tesla and other cars you've talked about, to what you're envisioning, where everything is a self-driving car, everyone has a self-driving car? Yeah, so I think there are maybe two paths that that different companies are taking taking different tacks. I think most of the car makers 
are taking an incremental approach where they're going to start with things like like Andrea talked about with the Tesla, where they can change lanes and they can do adaptive cruise control. And they're just going to build and build on that, add new features, add new software until they can eventually drive you and you can watch the movie like like she was saying. I think other car makers uh, or other other technology companies like Google are trying to go straight to fully self-driving with no steering wheel, no pedals, where you ha- you don't even have the option of taking control of the vehicle. And so will those two paths converge, do you think? I believe they will converge. And I, I, I believe that the Google model is, 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 is probably the faster way to get there. So with no steering wheel, no right. controls for the, for the passengers. Exactly. And in fact, Google, Google's been pushing this, and they just got a letter from the National Highway uh, Safety Administration saying that a computer system can, in fact, be a driver which is really significant because most of the laws talk about a driver. So we now have confirmation from the federal government that a computer system could be a driver. And you've just been in Austin where Google is testing uh, its version of driverless cars. And you saw some roaming around the city. What did those look like? Well, they look – it's been dubbed – Google calls it their, their prototype vehicle, but it's mm-hmm. been dubbed the uh, koala car. It looks like a cute little koala. <laughs> they want to make it look very, very benign and very friendly. Um, it's, it's like – it's a little two-seater. And you see it cruising up and down the streets, and it has two test engineers in it, but they're not, they're not driving. They're on their, their laptops recording information, and the vehicle's doing everything. Do people stare at them? Do they cause kind of commotion when they're on the streets? They do not now. When they really? first came, they did. And there were even some people that uh, – we heard a story from one of the test engineers that someone jumped in front of it to see if it would stop. And it did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a strange way to, to test that. What are some of the other kinks that you've seen in, in Austin? Are, are there, there must be some ways that the cars don't work well in city traffic. Well, the cars themselves are such good drivers that sometimes they aggravate the human drivers that want to cut corners and break laws. So they always go the speed limit. They always yield when they have to. And they've been rear-ended several times, always, uh, according to Google, always the other, other driver's fault. But they're such safe drivers that uh, they, can, they can also aggravate the guy that wants to go 40 in a, in a 25. So how do these cars work on highways, let's say, as versus neighborhoods? Because I'm assuming they're being practiced on both uh, in Austin. Uh, much better on highways. I see. So highways are, are, are much, much easier than, than cities. And actually, Google started on the highway, and you'll see you know, Tesla start on the highway. There are many other companies like Volvo has a program that they're going to launch in Gothenburg in Sweden next year called Drive Me, where they're going to give 100 of their latest SUV to real people in Sweden and have them actually play on their laptops, watch movies while they commute on the highway. So the highway technology is ahead of the city technology. And Google has, I think, essentially solved highway driving, and now they're focused on on city driving. I have a question in terms of the when I'm driving my car, let's say in the winter, I, I give myself a bit more room in front of the car in front of me. I, I know to, you know, maybe test the brakes a bit before I slow down. If there's an accident, I kind of keep distance. How are these autonomous cars doing that? Are they doing that at all? So in the weather in particular or yeah, just in general? In yeah, in the weather. Yeah. So weather is a, is a challenge. And you, you'll notice that the places that, that most car companies are testing are, are warm, with the exception of maybe Ann Arbor, Michigan, where, where uh, University of Michigan and the, and the big three are, are testing. But uh, weather is still a bit of a challenge, uh, snow in particular. So that's a challenge that we have in Denver and Colorado trying to bring the technology here. It's a, from what I understand from the experts, it's a solvable challenge, but uh, it can, it can um, it's a little more challenging for the sensors in weather. But the vehicles do, they have their own sensors and they also use either vehicle to vehicle technology or vehicle to cloud technology to know what's going on ahead of them. 
I see. So sensors in the vehicles around them as well. Yes, exactly. So they might, and and even in in some infrastructure-based sensors. So a self-driving vehicle might know it's driving down I-25 going south and there's an accident and it goes from 65 to zero. It would know way ahead of any human driver that there's this big stop. And so it can prepare to do that. So my, my personal view is these will be much safer than, than human vehicles. And they will actually get to this uh, kind of school mentality where, where they all talk to each other and they can no more than any one one person ever could. Well, of course, we have to get to that point. Exactly. Uh, it, it, could testing be done here in Colorado since we do have those prime conditions of a lot of traffic, a lot of highways, and a lot of winter weather? Absolutely. And and the and the state government and, and CDOT and the city, uh, all the way from the mayor to the, govern, to the governor, have been very welcoming of this technology, which I think is the right idea. And they have, they have been uh, trying to bring the different technology companies here to test. Eventually, these companies will need to test in mountainous conditions, in, in snowy conditions. And I, and I think Colorado is really primed to be one of those places. So is testing already been done here in, in Colorado or is it coming? Um, so different levels have been done. Okay. Google's not here. Got Google it. is only in, in Texas, California, and now they're moving to Washington State. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking to John Walker of the Rocky Mountain Institute about the future of self-driving cars. John, when do you think cars on our highways here in Colorado will be totally autonomous? So I think the first ones will be with before 2020. So we okay. will see fully self-driving vehicles, at least on the highways, by 2020. So is, is, is getting there a matter of these cars being designed particularly for that? Or, or does it mean rethinking of how highways themselves or other infrastructure are designed before these cars can, can move into the future? Well, so there, there's a, it's complementary. But the, what, what the tech co- companies are doing, and you know, they've, they've been in this disruptive biz- these disruptive businesses before, is they're designing products that work on existing infrastructure, which is very smart. They want to create a product that they can roll out anywhere they want they don't, when they don't need special things on the highways. Now, that being said, uh, there are things that infrastructure can do to help them, potentially sensors or, or special lanes or things like that to accelerate the, and optimize the deployment. And is there a federal grant that is being rolled out uh, to kind of help this here here in Colorado? Yeah, well, there's so the, the the federal Department of Transportation just issued a fifty million dollar grant, actually forty million dollars, and then ten million dollars for for electric vehicles from Vulcan, which is Paul Allen's organization, uh, to basically put all of that money into a single city to try to transform mobility in a city, and then have other cities learn from it. And and uh, Denver and Denver County and and Colorado and CDOT have applied to that. And I believe they have a very good shot of, of being in the final five, which will be announced on March 12th. And then that would expand these these test projects here, here in the city and the state. Exactly. The, the, the city that wins will become kind of a hotspot and a test bed for this. What about accidents and, and traffic congestion? Um, with these autonomous cars, do you believe that that would be reduced? So there's there's the we we can see the end game, and the end game is when you have a, you ve- the whole school of vehicles has this technology, and we see yes we see that a potential to completely eliminate congestion, which is really really exciting, because the vehicles accelerate and brake optimally, they optimally space themselves, uh, but there is this transition period where, like I said before, where they're interacting with human drivers, right, and they're doing all the right things, and human drivers don't always do the right things. So there is this interesting intermediate step where we're not quite sure how they're going to play. Together, and that could be in the next, you know, five or six years, two or three years, two or three years. And you had mentioned earlier uh, off the air about how one day we may not even own our own cars. Talk about that. Yeah. So uh, we we there's sort of this myth of we buy our car and it's freedom and it's mobility, but really it's our second highest expense, hmm. 
Only after housing, it's more than food and leisure combined. Our vehicles sit idle 95% of the time, so they're parked 95% of the time. Um, They're a huge asset that we don't use very much. And when you start automating vehicle systems, we foresee that you could have a mobility service system where I just page the vehicle I need for the job I need. So I have a small vehicle for a commute or, or, you know, a comfy vehicle for a commute or I have a self-driving Airstream to go up to the mountains with my friends or something like that. So it's definitely possible. And I think people will, we don't, we're never saying don't buy cars. I own a car. We're saying there'll be a better system that convinces people they don't want to own cars. But what about the people that love to get behind the wheel and feel that engine and, you know, go off road or go take a curvy road on the mountains? That's that's fantastic. I, I think that's great. I think that people should be able to to do that. And if your hobby, just like if you're a, if you're a, you like to fly Cessnas or something, if your hobby is getting a Corvette and driving out there, fantastic. But that is a myth in a city. Nobody's, nobody's Mm -hmm. driving around a windy country road with their hair blowing in downtown Denver or downtown Austin or downtown LA. It's, um, you're stuck in traffic. It, It, it's aggravating and it's, it's not fun. So what about kids today? Uh, give me kind of a future view. What will they be experiencing? Like I went to driver's ed and I sat with my math teacher behind, behind the wheel of a car and he taught me how to drive. How will kids of the future uh, interact with their vehicles? Yeah, well, I have a two-year-old daughter and a four-year-old daughter and I'm hoping they, they never have to own a car or have to get a driver's license. So I'm very concerned about the safety. Uh, 33,000 people died last year in this country and that's about 100 a day, which is crazy. 3,000 a month. So it's an epidemic. And we, we view this technology as a potential, uh, a, a potential, you know, something to solve that, that epidemic, which is huge. Um, so I think, and I, we're already sort of seeing it where uh, there's deferred driver's license uh, registration from young people. I remember when I was 15 and a half, I stood in line at the Colorado DMV to get my license. Young people are asking for Uber memberships and not driver's licenses. They see these vehicles as a potential burden. They want mobility. Mobility is freedom, not a, not a car. John, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. John Walker is with Rocky Mountain Institute, a sustainability think tank in Basalt. He's also part of the Institute's Mobility Transformation Program. You can see a video of Google's self-driving cars at cprnews.org. From driverless cars to how roads can be built to reduce congestion, we'll go for a thrill ride of sorts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're talking traffic congestion today. We just heard how driverless cars may solve some issues, but what about the roads themselves? I'm going to take a drive now so we can experience something new. Experts say it will ease traffic flow and decrease serious accidents. And it's placed at a well-known bottleneck on US-36 between Denver and Boulder. Seatbelts. Joining me in the car is traffic engineer Alex Arinello of Superior. We're going to exit US 36 at McCaslin Boulevard, and he's my co-pilot as we drive through a new kind of interchange. It's going to be strange the first time through. And it feels very weird to be on the other side of of, of the bridge than you're normally on. I feel like I'm going the wrong way, but I'm not. I'm following traffic because I'm on the... We travel right through the next traffic signal. We're going back onto the the other side of the road here, the right side of the road. And that's it. That's it. Huh. This new interchange keeps cars moving. It's called a diverging diamond. See a video of how it works at cprnews.org. It's only the second one built in Colorado. People say, what's a diverging diamond? And then you show a plan of it. They go, how does this work, especially ours, with, with you know, traffic going under and all over the place? And it could take a while to get used to. People are saying, this is terrible. Why did you do this? We're crossing over and it doesn't work. But once we got the three lanes open and we got the lights 
time the way we wanted them. We, we've gotten a lot of positive feedback since then. I do have to say that there's a lot of signage here. There's a lot of things happening for, for a driver who's not been through this. You've got multiple stoplights, I see. You've got three arrows for three lanes of traffic, only lanes. Is that confusing to, to drivers to see all this different signage? Or I think probably uh, initially it may be. But once you've been through it and you know what the signs are, you see the striping, it's pointed where you want to go, um, I think people get the hang of it. This new approach is just one example of what you might have to get used to as the state tries to ease congestion. And like me, you may find yourself driving in traffic patterns you may never have experienced before. Here to talk about why is Amy Ford, a spokeswoman for CDOT. Welcome, Amy. Thanks, Nathan. So are these diverging diamonds viable solutions that get at this critical issue of free-flowing traffic on our roadways over the long term? They absolutely are. And they help us do a lot of things. One, they help us move a lot more traffic through an intersection and specifically an interchange. And we're talking about capacity increases, you know, 20 to 30 to 40 percent, depending on the configuration and how much traffic you have in an area. That's not to add some additional safety as well as even cost improvements for the state. And I heard that it was less expensive to build this design than to go with a traditional design at McCaslin Boulevard. You know, it really is. People are used to our cloverleaf. Uh, that's a typical interchange, right? Yeah. So they look, they they come in, they circle around, they come back on the, the highway, et cetera. We don't have that anymore. With the diverging diamond interchange, essentially, it compresses the amount of space that you need to move traffic. And by a simple adjustment of moving traffic to the left-hand side of the road so they can continuously get onto the highway, we have even reduced costs in some instances you see upwards of 30 to 50 percent. Are there studies backing up at least the safety aspect of this? There really are. Uh, you know, we're not the only state who's doing a diverging diamond interchange. They've been done in Missouri and in Texas and elsewhere. We're actually one of the leading states, though, in how many we have here in the state. But uh, you've seen that it's been able to reduce uh, accidents of all kinds, and especially those really dangerous accidents, those T-bone accidents. So historically, what you used to have, if you were in an interchange, you would stop at a light, you would wait for the traffic to come by you, and then you would take a left-hand turn to get onto the highway. So there's that classic T-bone that can happen in that right. kind of an incident. Now, with the continuous flow that you have where these cars go into the left-hand lane and then they start getting onto the highway, we've reduced that significantly. Studies in Missouri, in fact, show that they reduced it up to 40 percent, the overall accidents in these areas. And there are currently two diverging interchanges in Colorado. Is that correct? That's right. There's one in Grand Junction, Colorado. There's one now in Louisville on McCaslin. We're in the process of building one, actually, down in Colorado. Colorado Springs at Fillmore. And in Durango, it's not a full interchange, but what it is, is it's called a continuous flow intersection. And it takes the same principles of a DDI, a diverging diamond, and puts it into play in a smaller space on more city streets. And across the country, it's still a relatively new design, about 70 of them across the country. Is this the way that transportation people are moving in the future, this type of, of design? It is so radically different if you drive through it. You know, it really is. I don't think that, you know, it just because the engineers think it's neat, they're people who actually drive these roads. Correct. And so the education piece of all of this is really important. We spent a lot of time working with the drivers in the US 36 area, for instance, before we opened this corridor with videos and with information and signage about how you drive the corridor. But yes, I think you'll see this becoming a trend as we become more innovative about how we spend our dollars, 
how we make improvements for mobility. And then ultimately, it's always about protecting people. And the safety is a huge component here. And I do want to talk about the safety of, of, of people, including pedestrians. I walked across the bridge uh, at US 36 and McCaslin. It's kind of strange. There was a long walkway in the middle of the bridge, protected on both sides by a concrete barrier. So I'm not walking on the side of the bridge like I typically would under a normal a normal bridge. Um, what kind of feedback has your department had from pedestrians? I know it's a little bit of a different change, let's say, for people who may be blind, who may be doing things by rote memorization? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, the feedback that we've had is it's been taken something a little bit that they've had to get used to. But once they do, they recognize it because in some areas, it actually shortens the amount of space that you have to cross as a pedestrian. So there are some benefits for the pedestrian access as well in this area. And I think overall, especially now that we're out of the full construction on the US 36 corridor, you see people get it. Some in cases, it's intuitive. You simply follow the traffic. But uh, we've got a lot of help out there to help make sure that people can continue to get it. And are you doing everything you can to help uh, people with disabilities uh, uh, navigate these interchanges? You know, uh, it's one area that we've certainly worked on, and I think it's one that we can continue to work on. And uh, I think the biggest piece of all of this is as we move into these new design concepts, and we've got a lot like this that could be coming, um, the public education piece and how we work with that end user, the customer, is really important. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel speaking with Amy Ford, spokesperson for the Colorado Department of Transportation, about new ways of managing traffic on the state's roadways. Uh, Amy, there's another kind of interchange that might be a bit more familiar than a DDI popping up, too, and that's the roundabout. Uh, still, they don't get much love from Americans. They're the butt of jokes. Uh, for example, there's a clip from The Simpsons where they get stuck in a London roundabout all day. Dad, no! You turned into a roundabout! <laughs> We'll just wait till the traffic thins out. And and you get the idea of turning and turning. Uh, CDOT has completed a double roundabout on I-70 at the Pecos Street exit in North Denver. It was completed in, in, in October 2014 for a cost of $18 million. Why roundabouts if they seem to be the butt of jokes and you get that feeling that people don't understand how to use them? You know, my favorite is always a European vacation when they get onto that roundabout. But, um, you know, the interesting thing is, is while people feel like they don't actually know how to use them, they do. And interestingly enough, they drive them. They drive them well. They are somewhat intuitive. Uh, again, the amount of accidents that we have in roundabout is absolutely decreased compared to a traditional intersection. It facilitates much more traffic flow. And from an aesthetic perspective, there's actually a great improvement there. So if you look at what we accomplished up on Pecos and I-70 compared to sort of a more traditional intersection that we have as someone's coming off the highway, it has a, an aesthetic improvement in a gateway into that community and that neighborhood that we wouldn't otherwise be able to achieve. Uh, we're looking at them actually additionally on the I-70 corridor as we go through uh, Central 70, mm -hmm. some other areas. And so it is, again, a combination of understanding how well they're signed and how people can use them. But uh, I think you'll continue to see roundabouts as part of our planning process. And I went through the Pecos roundabout uh, last week, first time during rush hour traffic. It, it wasn't easy, to be honest. There, It was several lanes of traffic converging in that roundabout. I thought 
lot there or a series of close calls. Um, is that a concern for you that you need to educate the public how to go through these? I saw people stopping in the middle of the roundabout. Yeah, you know, I think that as opposed to, let's say, Europe, where you see roundabouts everywhere. So pimples, people simply know how to drive them. In, in Colorado, certainly they are they are less prevalent. And so as people are unaccustomed to them, uh, they do start slowing down. And in, intuitively, the rules of the road in the roundabout is that once you're in the roundabout, you keep driving, just like Marge was doing. You just keep <laughs> driving. But uh, you you have the right of way. And I think that we continue to work on some education piece with that. And frankly, I think we could probably continue to do a better job on how we educate drivers with signage and some other things. And we constantly look at sort of those improvements as well. And in terms of the signage, I want to bring up another roundabout in I-70 in Glenwood Springs. That's 150 miles west of Denver. It opened in the mid-2000s. And CDOT actually had to repaint lines and do things differently after the after the project opened. Is that a concern? We did. And the reasons that we uh, do some of those things, again, is for the broader public education. What is, uh, you know, a limited signage plan that for people who might be more used to it is one thing. I think we felt the need sometimes to go in and do additional with how our signs work, what arrows should go with, where you actually turn to get out of the roundabout. I think it's going to be a continued education process. But when you look at safety and throughput, for these kinds of things, the benefits certainly outweigh some of the risks of it. And the accident types, again, are much less occasional more fender benders on it, uh, you know, where they touch each other, et cetera. But when you talk about very serious accidents, significantly reduced. Now, do you have to go back often to redesign these interchanges? You know, not very frequently, no. But we are always uh, respectful of what people are seeing in the community as these are put into place and what they feel like that, that the community needs in order to learn how to drive them and drive them well. And that's an instance, let's say, in Glenwood, where we did that. Are there other types of interchanges or highway projects your agency is pursuing that get to the heart of this congestion question? You know, I think these are two very good examples. There's some other types of interchange designs, and I could uh, bore you with great engineering terms, and I I won't. But I think what the important part to understand is that CDOT is constantly looking for innovations and how not only we design these projects, so can I take out a center pier on a bridge, for instance, and span the road differently so it alleviates uh, more congestion in the area because you've freed up more space to how we build these projects. In fact, the bridge at Pecos is a good example. We built it on the side of a road, picked it up, and pushed it into place. So we are constantly looking at that type of innovation and to use our dollars as effectively as we can. Amy, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Nathan. Amy Ford is a spokeswoman for the Colorado Department of Transportation. To see a video again of a diverging diamond interchange, visit cprnews.org. Up next, run-ins between coyotes typically peak during the winter. How to keep you and your pet safe. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Coyotes in the Denver metro area are particularly troublesome in winter. Run-ins with people and pet attacks tend to peak around January and February, and that's a relatively new trend for the Front Range, which rarely had coyote problems before 2005. Now, a team of scientists wants to find out what's going on. CPR's Sam Brash has the story. Andrew Dickage of Longmont has seen coyotes at their worst. His car broke down in the fall of 2013, so he decided to walk to work. And then... Out of nowhere, I heard a ruffle in the bush to my right. And the first one jumps and tries to bite my face. It wasn't just one coyote, but a pack of three. We drove out to the road where the attack happened. For about a minute and a half, I had at least one or two in my face the entire time. They never went for my legs. It was just all strictly to my face and my neck. When the coyotes finally let Dickage go, he had scratches all over his body and a deep gash down a finger. It sucked. I mean, it was one of those moments I would not wish on anybody. To be clear, coyote attacks on people are incredibly rare. 
Dogs attack thousands of people a year in the Denver metro, but there have only been about 25 reports of coyote bites since 2007. That's according to the Colorado Division of Parks and Wildlife. But the attack on Dickage alarms Stuart Breck. He's a coyote specialist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It was a pack of coyotes attacking a full-grown man. There's the development of the problem individual, and this is a good example of that. Those so-called problem individuals tend to stalk people, attack pets, or just hang out too close to humans. That often leads officials to kill the animals. So Breck has launched the Denver Coyote Project to find out what makes some coyotes bold or aggressive in urban areas. Chris Schell will lead the three-year study. He's a researcher at Colorado State University. Hopefully we can understand how problem animals are popping up, but then also potentially how to prevent problem animals from even popping up in the first place. The researchers have asked communities to help pay for the study. Pete Dunlavey is the open space coordinator for the city of Broomfield, which is one of five cities and counties to sign on so far. As we've had conflicts, we want to participate in that research going forward and developing better information about why these conflicts occur and how we can prevent them. Broomfield and other front-range communities have official policies to help people live with coyotes. That's partially a nod to biologists who say the animals are nearly impossible to get rid of. And it means the cities already urge people to remove sources of food and to keep pets on leashes. Shell says he'll look for other ways humans could be unintentionally welcoming coyote conflict. We're creating a whole new urban ecosystem that we don't even fully understand ourselves, but ironically, we are the biggest part of it. To understand those human impacts, the scientists plan to put GPS collars on coyotes to see how they use and move around the city. They'll also study coyotes that wildlife officials have killed. The scientists found two such animals in a freezer at the Colorado Division of Parks and Wildlife. The office shot the animals last November after reports that they'd surrounded a teenager in Littleton. The researchers took the carcasses to the zoology lab at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science to take samples. So we're just uncovering the carcass, so in that way we can get our hair samples and our tissue samples. Shell peeled a trash bag from the first coyote. It was stiff, and its tongue stuck out the side of its mouth. Shell clipped hair from its back for hormone analysis, and then... Okay, so for the last sampling part, so we can get some genetic data, I'm going to cut a little bit of this tongue off. Awesome. That data should help tell a larger story about how coyotes have colonized Metro Denver. Shell thinks much of that success has to do with coyote culture. In other words, how groups of coyotes trade or pass on personalities. Mark Beckoff is a retired biologist at CU Boulder and an advisor to Project Coyote, a California group that promotes coyote coexistence. He likes the study, but he worries it could give coyotes a bad rap for natural behaviors. When I'm out with people and we see coyotes, they'll say, oh, an animal is being aggressive when in fact they're being curious or exploratory or maybe assertive. And the researchers with the Denver Coyote Project agree. Whatever the study turns up about coyote behavior, it's people who will have to adapt their habits and attitudes. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News.
Mary Ann Bennell joins us now. She's a partner with the Denver Coyote Project and also Ranger One for Jefferson County Open Spaces. As we just heard, the study seeks new ways to prevent problems with coyotes, but Bennell says there's a lot people can do right now to prevent conflicts with the animals. That's especially relevant since run-ins with people and attacks on pets tend to peak in the winter. Mary Ann, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So why do most problems with coyotes happen during this time of the year? There's a couple reasons. One primarily is the we're entering into the breeding season during the wintertime. And as we head into breeding season, uh, alpha pairs that protect a territory become a little bit more protective of that core territory. And in doing that, they have a lesser tolerance for dogs, particularly domestic dogs being in their territory. And depending on the personality of those animals in that territory, they may follow dog walkers. They may uh, pop over a fence and injure or kill a dog that's in a yard. So it does uh, probably tie to this breeding season. The other thing is the length of day. So if you think about it, as we head into winter, our Uh days are getting shorter. We come home from work. We do our jogging. We do our dog walk. We're Coloradans. We're active. We're out as the days are getting shorter, which puts us into the coyote schedule because coyotes are active at dawn and dusk. And so it sort of puts us in direct a conflict with their schedule. And so we're likely to see more. And as you see more and you have more interaction, that increases the chance for conflict. So then are pets at the center of this uh, animal interaction, these animal conflicts? Are pets right there? Pets are uh, very much dogs precipitate a lot of the conflict with coyotes because coyotes do perceive them as a co-competitor. And coyotes are a competitive animal. They don't like other middle management carnivores muddling around in their territory. So a dog is often perceived as a competitive risk. And and I have to ask this. So I, I'm saying coyotes and you say coyotes. Is there a, a... Both are correct. Okay. It often has to do with where you are from. So if you're from east of the Mississippi, you often say coyote. If you're from the west, you'll say coyote. So it, oh, both are correct. Okay. Well, I'm going to go with coyote for you're, now. Do what's it. comfortable. <laughs> so so I, I thought that these animal attacks between dogs or cats, that they typically eat these animals, they eat the pets, uh, especially if they're small. But what do coyotes actually eat in cities and suburbs? That's a great question. What we're finding in research and looking at scat analysis In other words, actually dissecting their poo. So we know exactly what they've been eating. We find that coyotes have a natural food diet, even in the city. So they're going for small mammals, primarily some seeds, some fruits. They do benefit from our fruit trees that we have, our exotic fruit trees in urban environments. And they do in areas where there's a high density of, say, someone's feeding cats or something like that. A coyote will incorporate more cats into their diet. But for the most part, kills to dogs. While they may eat the dog, most of the time that kill is based on competition and not so much food. I see. So so essentially a fight breaking out between them, essentially. It's not really even, you know, the domestic dog may not even see it coming. It's probably not, you know, a lot of times dogs will rush to the fence to bark. They see it as another dog. And then the next thing you know, that coyote who has sort of a genetic training to be cunning. And my suburban dog has training to sit with me on the couch and binge watch Scandal. You know, so these are two very different approaches. And and that really sets the domestic dog up for not a good experience. And it often isn't a fight. It's just a surprise. You're a partner on the Denver Coyote Project and help with a previous study of coyotes on the front range. Correct. Uh, what's the basic profile of a coyote that lives in Metro Denver? It's an excellent question. And the answer to that is is what Chris is hitting on in his research, that there are different personalities of coyotes in the Denver metro area. There are some that are quite shy, and we never see them. We never hear from them. They have a low profile. They do their thing, and nobody even knows about it. There's a coyote in my neighborhood. I live um, on the interface between Wheat Ridge and Arvada, and that coyote 
coyote is on to me and my dog, and and we see it frequently in the morning. It keeps huh. about thirty foot distance from us, and um, it is aware of us, and it's definitely interested in us. And so that's a very different personality than um, the coyote that I would describe that's shy and sort of hidden away. Some coyotes are tolerant. Some coyotes are interested in domestic dogs. Some coyotes are quite used to people, and their experience with people has been no one's ever really bothered them or tried to shoo them away. So why would they trouble with uh-huh. leaving the scene if we're there? So the answer to that question is there's a bunch of different types of coyotes in the Denver metro area, and a lot of it depends on their what they've been taught from their family group. So there's partly that, that sort of what's taught from the family group. But then there's also, as Chris is looking at, maybe there's a genetic component, that there's a predisposition to be bold or exploratory or or hate on dogs or, you know, these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and then also there's that context of what has their experience been with humans prior. So the coyote that is on to me, I always give it a hard time. I mean, I don't let it follow me around. I give it the business every time I see it. Like, like I, I yell at it, at it. I run at it. I and it, it as soon as it sees me, and as soon as I turn to make that action, it starts trotting off. So it's used to me, and it's used to my response to it, and that keeps me a zone of safety. So I know with me and my dog, it's not going to come over to us. So do you recommend that? that action for for people who may see a coyote? I do. I absolutely do. I think if you have a coyote that's in an area that it shouldn't be in, like a playground or a schoolyard or a backyard, or a coyote engages you inappropriately, in other words, you're walking down a trail and there's a coyote standing there 10 feet in front of you and it's not going anywhere, give it the business. That way you're teaching it to avoid you specifically and, and give you that zone of safety where it's going to trot off, hopefully, and, and leave you alone. If you just stand there and stare at it or take a video of it for YouTube or, you know, whatever, what is the message you're giving that coyote? The message is, I tolerate you. You can hang out with me. You can engage me inappropriately. So no selfies with the animal, but... Selfies are not recommended. <laughs> no. Um, I did have a coyote approach me while I was in the plank position. I was working out in a parking lot and I looked up and here's this coyote staring at me. It's very... Very difficult to haze from the plank position, but as soon as I stood up and charged at it and yelled at it, it took off. But me sitting there with my on my hands and feet, going "Hey, go away!" It just looked at me like, "Really?" <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of noises that that scare coyotes, I, I've heard them make some really creepy sounds at night. Uh, here's an example. It's this eerie yelling and yelping mm-hmm. and yipping mm-hmm. sound. Mm-hmm. You know, what is that sound? So that is called the group yip howl. And it is, to some people, the most blood-curdling thing they'll ever hear. It is chilling. To other people, it's just exciting. It is a social event. When coyotes go into a group yip howl, it's usually, most of the time, it's initiated by the alpha male in the family group. He'll start in, the female, the alpha female starts in, and then the subordinates in that group will start in. And... Those four coyotes can sound like 25 coyotes because of all the gurgling and laughing and barking and yipping. It just is such a complex vocalization. But it's really just a social event. If you can watch their body language, which I've been able to do at the research center in Utah, there's a lot of roto-wagging of tails and licking of faces, and they all come together. And and, and it's a way of, of really sort of vocalizing a social bond. Is there any sign that this could change, that coyotes could stop living so close to people? What we're seeing is coyotes are here to stay. 
And so this is the new normal for the Denver Metro resident. And so accepting that you have an apex predator in your neighborhood and changing your behavior accordingly is a really good idea. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Marianne Bennell is a Ranger One for Jefferson County Open Space. She's also a partner with the Denver Coyote Project, which recently launched to study how coyotes have adapted to life in Metro Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Healthcare once united Democrats. Now it's a divisive topic in the party's presidential primary. Hillary Clinton favors building on Obamacare. The last thing we need is to throw our country into a contentious debate about health care again. But Bernie Sanders wants to start from scratch with a single payer plan. In my view, health care is a right of all people, not a privilege, and I will fight for that. Well, I can only... Colorado voters will show where they're leaning in this Tuesday's caucus, but they won't just be thinking about the national plan. They're also thinking about a local initiative to create the state's own single-payer plan, Colorado Care. They'll vote on that this fall. And as CPR health reporter John Daly discovered, the debate amongst Democrats on this state proposal mirrors the national conversation. Democratic state lawmaker Irene Aguilar is an MD and one of the people behind Colorado Care. She says despite improvements under Obamacare, many people still find it tough to pay their medical bills. What we have now are many people who are struggling just to pay for the insurance, much less to make their co-payments and deductibles and actually go in and get the health care that they need. That thought was echoed recently at a Bernie Sanders campaign office in Denver. A couple dozen volunteers are making calls to remind voters of the state's caucus March 1st. And I'm a volunteer with the Bernie Sanders campaign. Volunteer Linda Powers is a former Democratic state senator. She applauds Obamacare, but is backing both Senator Sanders' universal health care approach and Colorado's single-payer ballot proposal. There's a lot of gaps still. There's a lot of people who are uninsured, and there's a whole lot more people who are underinsured. Nationally, nearly 29 million remain uninsured. And a report by the Colorado Health Institute found that despite Obamacare, the number of underinsured Coloradans has grown by 2.5 percent. That's an issue for 28-year-old Sanders volunteer, Denverite Vinnie Cervantes. He believes Secretary Clinton's approach to health care reform is too cautious. What some politicians would propose as pragmatism, a lot of people, including myself, recognize as stalling for incremental change. Nita Lynch agrees with Cervantes. She's working the phones this evening for Senator Sanders. At 74, she's on Medicare. It's single payer. It is seamless. It's wonderful. Lynch believes there's a synergy between Colorado's ballot proposal and the Sanders health care plan. The two mesh together, and I think it is giving momentum to Bernie's campaign and vice versa. But like on the national stage here in Colorado, not all Democrats are on the same page. Obamacare has cut the uninsured rate to 9 percent, a historic feat. Here in Colorado, it's been cut in half to below 7 percent, the fifth biggest drop across the country. Colorado business groups and mainstream Democrats like Governor John Hickenlooper point to those statistics. That to throw it all out and kind of start all over again would be prohibitively expensive. The governor says rather than try an untested state plan that would cost Colorado $25 billion a year, it's best to build on what exists now. This message of evolution rather than revolution was a central theme at a recent Clinton campaign event in Denver. People don't want to go backwards. Chelsea Clinton headlined the gathering for local Latino women. She told the crowd of more than 100 about why her mother's efforts to expand health coverage 
makes sense. They're worried about losing the coverage they have now. They want to improve quality and lower costs, and that's exactly what my mom's plan will do. Attendee Cynthia Mares is an attorney from Centennial. She says she doesn't know a lot about the Colorado Care proposal, but at the national level, she likes Secretary Clinton's measured approach and believes Sanders hasn't delivered enough specifics. She's the one that seems to be able to know how we can improve upon what exists right now. But what exists right now was a tough sell. Laura Chapin is a Democratic political strategist. She says Democrats had a hard enough time passing Obamacare with their party in charge of Congress. With the Republican Congress? I think this is one of those conversations where idealism meets reality, which I think is fundamentally the argument that Hillary is making. Uh, It is a family feud. That's longtime independent Colorado pollster Floyd Cerulli. He says the establishment in both parties is being challenged by outsiders with energized followers who are frustrated with the status quo. Between the Clinton and establishment wing of the party versus the Sanders liberal youth wing of the party, there are some real tensions and differences, and it plays out in single payer. He says the question is how deep and lasting the rift could be. Clearly, the Democratic Party is worried about this issue. Especially, he says, since in the general election, Colorado is a key swing state. I'm John Daly, CPR News. You might think dance is meant for a stage, but don't tell that to Joanna Rotkin of Boulder. I did a piece in my Subaru Outback. I've danced in creek beds, an art gallery, a cafe, and the racquetball court in the North Boulder Rec Center. As CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones explains, Rutkin and her dance partner are back at the rec center for their latest performance in an unexpected place. This is a swimming pool. And why are we at a swimming pool? We are performing Goodnight Courtney Love at the North Boulder Rec Center. That's Laura Ann Samuelson. She collaborated with Joanna Rotkin on Goodnight Courtney Love. The title is a nod to the rock musician. But Samuelson says, really, it refers to any female public figure. She says this dance explores how women are portrayed and perceived. We're really curious about what women have to do and are doing when they're in the public eye and how people are responding. There's a twisty yellow slide behind the dancers. And yes, Samuelson and Rockin are about to perform in this swimming pool. I think the words I would use are quirky and um, absurd. And there's a lot of space for us to navigate unexpected moments that are happening all of the time. That's Rotkin. One of those unexpected moments happens when a voice comes over the loudspeaker to announce the rec center will soon close. And the duo just goes with it. Rotkin loves site-specific dances. She says it's a way to bring more art into daily life. And the other thing is, you know, there's not a lot of affordable art spaces right now. They're able to use the North Boulder Rec Center for free. And they can break some rules here, too, like wear clothes in the pool. The dancers are dressed in what they call power suits. Rockin says it reminds her of Hillary Clinton. It's like something you'd wear to the office, and so mine is turquoise with shoulder pads, and we both have on high heels, and we both have pantyhose on, and we both have purses. The dance alludes to barriers that women face, like hitting the glass ceiling in a company. That's tricky stuff to portray in dance. But Rockin demonstrates this by walking into a wall. 
and Samuelson gets her whole body entangled in the rails that divide the swimming pools. About 80 people watch the performers splash, crawl, swim, push, jump, and stretch. From the audience, Tana Houghton says she can relate to some of the parts, like when the drenched dancers frantically try to brush their wet hair. Like the futility of brushing your hair in water. (laughs) Of like, wow, how many times do I do that kind of a thing in my life where I'm doing something that is not very fruitful? Houghton says as a kid, she swam before she even crawled. And she still loves to swim. I haven't recently, so this inspires me to get back in the water. In fact, that's dancer Joanna Rotkin's hope. She wants to invite others, like Houghton, to join her for future performances of Goodnight, Courtney Love. A grand vision is that it would get much, much bigger and we would include a lot more people. And Rotkin wants to do more events at the rec center. After all, she says, there are basketball courts and hallways she could easily turn into a dance stage. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. The next performance of Goodnight, Courtney Love is tomorrow night at the North Boulder Rec Center. You can see photos at CPRnews.org. And that's our show for this Friday. Thanks to audio engineers Michael Hughes and Matt Hers, our director Stephanie Wolf, and producers Michael DeYuana, Andrew Dukakis, and Sam Brash. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend. <laughs>